may be seated. Grab your Bibles as you're being seated. Um, just thank you to John and Lauren. Uh, I noticed that Lauren's parents are here. Glad you all are here with us this morning. Uh, they hail from Austin, Texas, and uh, I'm, I actually had the privilege of doing their wedding. How long has it been ago? How long has it been now? Four months. Four whole months. Yeah, glad to see you're still. <laughs> you will be giving pointers. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Hey, uh, in the presence of your dad, I just want to know, has John been good to you, Lauren? Okay, there you go. That was a dramatic pause. I'm a little, I got a little nervous there for a second. So, well, awesome. Glad that you're here. And John, um, obviously, living in Austin has had an influence on you. I love your mustache and uh, keeping Austin weird. All right. Uh, hey, man, it is great to be here. I, I've been looking forward to being with you all all week, as I do every time. And there's just so many exciting things going on in the life of our church. I want to mention to you a couple of them. Um, first of all, we're, we're getting people signed up for groups, and we're, we're doing um, some of the same and some new stuff this, uh, this fall. Uh, it is our hope that you will take advantage of opportunities to connect beyond this setting. Now, this can be a cool setting to meet people and kind of casually say hello. But what we know is that you need to be in relationship with other believers in a way that's different than just, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. You, you need to be in relationship with other believers so you can be encouraged and you can express kind of what's on your heart, good and bad, if you'd like to. And so uh, a few things that we have going on, there's a, white, there's a whole bunch on your t- chair today, and I apologize that there's so much, but if you get bored, just start reading it all. Um, uh, just two things that are really, or three things that are really different, and we'll kind of be rolling these out over the next few weeks, but just to just to make mention of them, we're going to do two midweek kind of church services, and, uh, and we're going to call them uh, South Neartown Gathering, because that's the location where it is. That one's going to meet at my house, and then there's going to be one in North Heights. That one's going to meet at Dave and Cindy's house, so that's going to be uh, men and women. Uh, children will be included also. We will have a kind of a plan uh, for them, depending on how many kids show up. But that's just going to be a time of gathering. There'll be some sort of food, and then some time of, in the Scripture just encouraging one another. So I want to encourage you to consider being a part of one of those two nights. Um, and my idea or my thought is that it's important, I think, for you to plan on connecting with other believers at least once a week. And so some of you travel, you're not able to attend every single Sunday morning. So I understand that life happens. The Texans are coming. Uh, uh, the season's about to start. I get all of that and it's real life. And, and rather than fight against that, what I want to do is just say to you, hey, it's important that you connect with other believers, make it a priority, and find a time during the week to connect with other believers. So in addition to Sunday morning, you can meet in uh, the North Heights area if you live up that way, or South Neartown at those two times. And so I want you to check that if you're interested, you think you might attend every once in a while. We want for a good number of you to plan on committing to attending every week, but you say, hey, I can't commit to attending every week, but I am interested in being a part of it every now and then. Go ahead and check that, and we'll get you on the list. NT Path, I'm going to roll this out a little bit more next week, but basically it's a customized discipleship plan where you, based on where you are spiritually, get a plan. Somebody mentors you, disciples you to take steps in your faith. So you can be really new in the faith and take steps or really uh, mature in your faith. We just want to fulfill the Great Commission, which Jesus says, make disciples. And so that's really what the heartbeat of our church is. There's an Outer Loop women's group. That, that's some women that live like in Pearland and 
and in the Sagemont area in Clear Lake. And so uh, it's a great group. Uh, Middleman, uh, our, our, um, that's a group of like teenagers that meet on the northwest side. Anyway, so, so you, can, you can read the rest. Uh, and, and one thing I would say also there on the women's retreat, we want you to go. It costs the church about $85 per uh, woman to go. But basically what I've said is it's free if you can pay uh, the money to go, or you want to pay, help pay somebody else's way to go, that'd be great. But I, I, I just want you to go. So I'm not worried about the money. I believe God's going to provide as he always has. So just sign up if you want to go. That's going to be a really good time doing whatever you women do at these retreats. I have no idea. So uh, um, anyway, so, so that's just an opportunity for you. One other little thing here before I get into the scripture is, as you know, we have coming up a trip to Ecuador uh, through our partnership with Compassion International. We have several dozen children that are sponsored by families in our church that live in Ecuador. And I've just got back probably three weeks ago from there and kind of checking it out in view of sending a team. The dates are set March 6th through 11th. Here's, here's how it works. You leave Thursday night, like after work-ish, you go uh, for the weekend, and then you actually fly back. You'll arrive back Tuesday morning, like 6 in the morning. So the idea for those of you that work or go to school is you'd only have to miss two work days, Friday and Monday, if you could work it out. So we're trying to make it so that as many of you can go as possible. Jeannie is going to go, my wife, um, and several others expressed interest. The cost is going to be $2,000 to $2,500. You say, oh, my goodness, I want to go, but, but uh, I can't afford that. Here's the deal express interest. There are some of you that want to see this mission trip happen. You're unable to go, but you'd like to help somebody to go. And so you will uh, have an opportunity to support others going. If you want to go, feel like God wants you to go, you have a child that's sponsored there, even if you don't have a child that's sponsored there and you would just like to go on this mission trip to Ecuador, uh, then just let us know and so we can begin preparing for and seeing how God will provide for this. I really uh, just believe that, that we don't have to budget for God. We just say, God, this is what we believe you called us to do. And, and so, God, we just want to watch you provide for it. It's happened this way for the life of our church, and uh, we've seen God do miraculous things. So if you feel like God wants you to go to Ecuador, or even if you're just interested in going to Ecuador, then we want you to go. Okay? All right. Here we are in Colossians. And Colossians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves and uh, it's been an interesting study in Colossians. And of course, a couple of friends of mine, as I've been absent in July, helped kind of carry us through Colossians. But it's been a really interesting study. And, and as I read a letter like this and think about a letter like this and consider it was inspired by God, uh, I, I asked the question, why did Paul write this letter? And we discussed some of this early on. And, and, and on the surface, we know that Paul is dealing with uh, some false teachers. He's wanting to correct doctrine, or some false doctrine, by, by giving the truth of God, what God has and the truth of the gospel. And, and he's also writing it to support the work in Colossae. He, he, there's, this is a fledgling church, and, and so he's wanting to support them and instruct them. He knows that they're, like us, very new and need some help along the way. But I want to consider the, the reason that Paul wrote this letter and was inspired by God to write this letter is because he wanted to move this fledgling congregation beyond the point that they were at. 
You see, they're at a point where they've heard the good news, they've accepted it, they begin gathering to talk about it, and then they're going about their lives. Maybe they've gotten used to their weekly meetings, uh, some home meetings, and they're getting used to other people outside of their faith, thinking that they're kind of weird and different. But Paul would not have had to write this letter to them if he expected them to just stay where they are. He writes this letter to them because he knows God wants to move them from where they are to a place that they have not yet been. This is why we open God's word. Not just so that you'll know more about where you're supposed to be right now, but so that we will get a vision for something that has not yet happened. Paul knows that the Colossians cannot stay where they are. The most natural thing for any person is to stay. We like routine. We like habits. We like our current list of relationships. So for anything to disrupt that, it bothers us. But it's when our routine and our sense of staying is disrupted that we will really grow. And Paul's writing this letter to them so that they'll get a vision for a larger purpose. He begins the letter in the first couple of chapters, as you know, basically telling them the truth of the gospel. So Colossians is like Ephesians. The first half is really theological, and the second half is very practical. Um, So he says in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, about Jesus, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So through Christ, we have redemption. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. This is the gospel. Through Jesus, we can be delivered from darkness into into light. And then we see in the beginning of chapter 3, very practically, that we're to set our mind on things above. And starting in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul begins to deal practically with how the gospel impacts the individual. Remember in chapter 3, verse 5, if you have not, uh, you weren't here that week, you can go listen to it online or, or just read it yourself. It's pretty, pretty clear. He says to put to death certain things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So he gives us a list of things that you're supposed to put to death. Then he gives a list of things that you're supposed to put on in Christ. So gospel has impacted you as an individual in this way. And then last week we looked in chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, how the gospel impacts not just our individual lives, but our closest group of friends, our oikos, our household. We talked about the husband's relationship to the wife, the wife's relationship to the husband, the parent's relationship to the kids, the, the slave's relationship to the slave owner, and we applied that to our working relationships. And so we see that the gospel, once it takes root in us, it begins to impact our individual lives. It begins to impact our closest friendships. But now what we see is that the gospel, once it is rooted in us, has an impact beyond our lives. We get to see that the gospel invites us into a larger story. Now, um, what Paul's going to do here is, is begin to give them a sense that they're a part of something larger. Um. And if they would just believe that, that they could experience a real adventure. Let me illustrate it in this way. 
So I love the water. Um, I, I like swimming. Any swimmers out there? Anybody like swimming? Okay. Let's start here. I, I like taking baths. Anybody here like taking baths? Okay, good, good. I like swimming. I do like boating. When I was in college, any free weekend, I was, I was on the lake water skiing or wakeboarding. I love, love water. I've always enjoyed fishing. I'm not really a very good fisherman, um, but, but I enjoy it. One thing in the water that I've never done that I would love to do is go sailing. Has anybody here ever been sailing? Just raise your hand if you've ever, you've ever been sailing. I don't, I don't know much about it, and if I ever choose to get into it, I, I look forward to, to reading and learning, but it sounds pretty simple to me. You're on the water in a sailboat. The wind is blowing. You adjust your sail to catch the wind. All right, and that, that's basically sailing. I'm sure it's more technical than that. I see that there are ropes and sails and all kinds of things that, that uh, impact it. And I don't need to know all that right now. All I know is that I need to determine which way is the wind blowing and then make adjustments so that the sail on my boat will catch the wind just right. And if I do that, I'll experience a great adventure. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, that if we will listen carefully to God's word, see where God is uh, working, listen to God's voice, and we can adjust our sails, which is our daily activity, we will experience all that God has for us. And I promise you, I promise you, it's far greater than anything you could ever ask or imagine. I promise you. We just get a sense of where the wind is blowing. So what God is doing, we can adjust our sails. I mean, some of you helped start this church because you sensed that God was doing something new in your life. Some of you are here having never attended a church or not attended church for a long time because you sensed that God, God's spirit was, was blowing fresh in your heart. And maybe you're not exactly sure what, where this journey will take you, but you know, that you, 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 you know that God is doing something enough that you want to adjust your sails attending a Sunday morning or, or opening God's word. Adjust your sails and so that you can experience all that God has for you. So this is what we're doing in this moment. Let's look here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Stand to your feet. I'm just going to read a few verses and then tell you what it says. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Here's what it says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We're just going to look at these three verses this morning. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul continues, this is how the gospel rooted in you has an impact on your life. We've seen how it impacts you individually, and we see how it impacts your oikos, your household, your immediate sphere of influence. Now let's look at how you can be a part of something beyond your immediate area of influence. And we see Paul's command in verse 2 of chapter 4 telling us, Christians must pray. So, If you're taking note, just write down those three words. I tried and tried and tried to think of a more witty way of saying it. But at the end of the day, it's just very simple. Christians must pray. Now, I want you to remember 
that Paul has already made it clear that he prays regularly for the Colossians, the church at Colossae. Look at chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to flip over there really quickly. He says, so from the day we've heard, and what he's heard from Epaphras is that uh, their witness is strong and that good things are happening in their church. So the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is, as a spiritual leader, praying for them. Paul is a very gifted man. He is a very, I mean, before Christ, he was educated by the most intelligent uh, rabbis of the day. And in Christ, he now has the Old Testament knowledge, has been converted radically. He is a very, very gifted leader, very gifted. And yet he knows that he can't offer the Colossians all that they need He must access God Almighty himself. He must pray. Paul regularly prays for them. But prayer is not for the spiritually elite. Oh, let me mention these verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. We see not only does he do this for the Colossians, uh, but uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, he prays for the the church in Rome. Be constant, or he challenges them, be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, he tells the Ephesians to pray at all times. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, a verse you might be familiar with, pray without ceasing. So this command that Christians are to pray is very consistent throughout the New Testament. This idea of prayer, it's, it's really simple. It's conversation with God where we tell him things that we're thankful about or that we're thinking about. We tell God things about him that we love. The special thing about prayer is that it's a moment of incarnation where God, we meet with God in conversation with our words. We acknowledge that God is involved in the details of our life. It really is an opportunity for us to ask for wisdom. And James chapter one says, ask for wisdom. God will give it to you. Or we can ask for comfort. The role of the Holy Spirit, one part of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to provide comfort, and we ask for that through prayer. We can ask for provision. Think about the Lord's Prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He says in prayer, hey, you can ask God for things. Maybe you need something. Ask him. And through prayer, we get to what's called intercede, which is we get to pray on behalf of others. This is the beautiful thing about being in community. See, if you're not in Christian, if you're a believer and you're not really in Christian community, you won't know what to pray for other believers. We get to pray for others. Prayer is so simple. And in spite of being simple, it becomes so difficult, right? If I were to say, how many of you think you ought to pray more? Most of you would raise your hand. Now, one thing about prayer I mentioned is that it's not just carrying a list of items to God. Sure, that's included, and for some of you, your prayer life will be helped if you write out a list of things. But when we apply our knowledge of the gospel to our prayer life, we understand that prayer is fellowship with God. We get to spend time with God. In fact, this is the best part of prayer. We get to sense God's presence. We get to 
to know that God is near us. Our faith, which is many times cognitive, like a list of uh, things that we believe, becomes very personal in prayer, becomes very real. I, I love reading through the Bible's prayers. One of my favorite places to read in the Bible where people are praying is in the book of Psalms. There's a lot I could say about it, but what I would say in summary about the psalmist, uh, many of them are songs, psalm means song, S-O-N-G, is that the psalmist wrote songs of prayer. And if you read these prayers, you'll see that the psalmist was, was in God's face. Boldly approaching God. Not just to say, hey, God, I love you and you're awesome, which is an important thing to do in prayer. But there were also times when the psalmist hoped for something that had not yet happened, dreamt for something that seemed impossible to achieve. The psalmist asked things, but you also see that in prayer, the psalmist trusted God his concerns with God. The prayers get feisty at times. There are prayers that are so real and so raw, it would offend us to even hear them. Things like, God, how could you do this to me? God, where are you? God, why do you let all the bad people flourish and the good people suffer? This is the thing about prayer, is it's the most real thing we can do in our Christian faith. It draws us deeply into the heart of the Father. And some of you have grown up in traditions where you're given prayers to say, which is wonderful, I think beautiful. And uh, if you've not grown up in that tradition, you might be missing out on something. But I want you to know, if your sense of what prayer is, is like a cold list of words given to this cosmic being, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is about relationships and drawing in to the Father getting close to him and being honest with him. Now, Paul commands this of the Colossians. This isn't a suggestion. Actually, prayerlessness is a sin. So what we ought to do, and I frankly regularly do this, repent of prayerlessness. God, I'm sorry for depending upon myself too much. God, I'm sorry for not bringing this to you. I want to obey your word, which says continue steadfastly in prayer. And I imagine for Paul as he's given them a list of things that they're supposed to put to death and put on and how their relationships in their home are supposed to operate. I'm guessing that for Paul, he knew that the Colossians might go, hey, we got our list. We're not going to be sexually immoral or impure or have uh, evil desire or covetousness. We're going to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek. And we're going to, in our home, love our wives and do all these other things. We got it. We got it. And frankly, with a list of religious things to do, you don't need to pray. But Paul knows that God has invited them into something larger. And what they need is something much more than a list of things to do or to not do. They need God's power coursing through their veins.
They need a sense that what they're doing will never be accomplished without God Almighty. Paul instructs them, continue steadfastly in prayer. This, this notion of steadfastness, he, he um, it gives us a sense that they're always ready to pray. They're very active in their prayer. It reminds me of this story in Luke chapter 18. Don't worry about turning there. I'll read it real quickly. It's a parable. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples by using a bad example of this idea of being steadfast or persistent in prayer. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, here's the parable, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Bad guy, okay? There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord says, Jesus says in application of this parable, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God care about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He's asking this rhetorically. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So Jesus is saying, there's a story about a woman. She's been treated unjustly. The judge is ignoring her, but she wants justice. So she begs the judge, begs the judge, begs the judge. And the judge is an ungodly man. But because the woman keeps begging him, he says, finally, okay, leave me alone. And he deals with the injustice that the woman has suffered. And Jesus is saying, if an ungodly judge will act justly to somebody that's been requesting over and over and over and over, then how much more will a just judge, God the Father, answer those who are his children? We ought to be persistent in our prayer. Sometimes we pray for things and it doesn't happen right away, and so we kind of move on. I really think there's something dynamic in, in, in prayer whenever we say, I'm going to pray for this till I get an answer. I mean, the answer may be wait. The answer may be no. But it may be yes. I mean, in our day, in our time, we have immediate gratification. We get what we want, when we want it. This idea of being steadfast in God, I'm going to pray for the salvation of this person until you tell me to quit praying for him until you tell me uh, that it's going to happen sometime in the future and then I'll keep praying or until they become a believer in Jesus Christ. Or God, I'm going to pray for this situation at work. Or God, I'm going to pray for my child. Or God, I'm going to pray for this provision and I will not give up. And my understanding of your goodness or your justice is not going to be determined by how long it takes you to answer my prayer. I'm just going to continue steadfastly in prayer. That would be a good discipline for us. Let me ask you a question. Are you steadfast in prayer? Or do you give up easily? Maybe you've prayed in the midst of a difficulty and you've, you've given up. Here's what happens sometimes. When we're in the midst of a difficulty and we pray to God, if things don't work out right away the way we want them to, then we kind of go from not believing in prayer to not believing in God. That's what happens. Are you steadfast 
in prayer. Or maybe you don't feel like you need to continue steadfastly in prayer because you've organized your life such that nothing requires prayer. Think about that. You've worked so hard to organize for security financially, relationally, whatever other way, that what keeps you from praying is simply you don't need God or you have a sense that you don't need him. I really believe this is a major problem. We organize our lives for security, and so we can see how everything is going to work out. When God may be saying, no, I want you to be on the front edge of security. I want you to to, to begin thinking about doing stuff that's faith risky. Not stupid risky, but faith risky. I mean, when I left to plant this church, it was really faith risky. I mean, borderline stupid risky. But you know what I've had to do? I've had to learn to pray. I've had to learn to beg God. Cry out to God, God, will you do this? Will you provide for this? Things haven't worked out. I mean, in every area that I've prayed for regarding this church or my own life or whatever exactly as I would have written it out for myself, but I promise you that there's something really powerful about being steadfast in prayer. What area of your life maybe is God leading you out into which is going to require you to pray like you never have before. Maybe you're waiting for a major life decision to do something that you know is in your heart to do until you get enough money. Now, I want to be careful here because I certainly think it's possible to do dumb things financially. But maybe God is saying to you, I want you to step and I'll provide for you. A reference when I started this church. You know, when I sat before my previous employer, I had zero dollars for this church. Zero. I didn't know how I was going to provide at the time. I had three kids. All I knew was God wanted me to step in faith. And I told my, my previous boss, I said, all I ask is that you pay me two weeks. That's all, that's all I ask. And I knew I needed to step. And then what I saw was God provide. Not only did they pay two weeks, they've actually paid six months and then a whole year's salary. But I learned to pray. And it's interesting here. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's actually a reference to what's the second coming of Christ. He's saying, I want you to continue steadfastly in prayer, but not just for your immediate circumstance. I want for you to be steadfast in prayer with the vision that God is doing something in the world and there will be a day when Jesus returns to make all that's broken uh, right, restore all that's broken. I want you to pray with thanksgiving, he says. Thanksgiving is to be an accompaniment of prayer. What will happen when we pray regularly? I believe when we learn to pray regularly as individuals and as a church, We'll catch the wind of God's activity in the world and we'll experience the adventure of a lifetime. Paul goes on in verse 3 to extend his request of them in prayer. He asks them to pray for him and his ministry. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us. I like to imagine the very first time that the Colossians received this letter and read it. I imagine that when they get to this part about 
praying for Paul, that they read it, read it this way. Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door. I wonder if they pause there. You see, they knew Paul was in prison. He was behind a closed door. I mean, if I were Paul, I would say, pray also for us. Pray also for me, that God may open to me a door so I can get out of this prison. But it is fascinating to consider. He has no concern for his immediate situation, but again has a vision of something larger. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He's not focused on his immediate circumstance. And there would not have been anything wrong with him saying, hey, pray that I'd get out of prison. But it's incredible to consider. He has the Colossians in their ear like no other time in the history of the Colossian church. And in a way that he may never have them listen to him again, he's told them how important prayer is. He has them on the edge of their seat. Here's my one request. Pray that I can continue declaring the mystery of Christ. Yeah, 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 I'm in prison. But here's the more important thing. Pray that I would remember, that I would, would, would continue to see that my life is a part of something larger because of what Christ has done in me. We get so focused on our immediate circumstance that we can lose sight of what God wants to do through us as a part of this larger story. Do you know that? We get so focused on our immediate struggle or immediate hobby or our immediate whatever that we lose sight of this larger story. But Paul gives us a really beautiful Example of what it's like to have God's heart. He says, I just want more opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ. In your job, I have no doubt it requires a lot of you. And you must focus on it to do it well. But have you lost sight of why God may have you there? Do you know that you are there to be a part of God declaring the mystery of Christ through you? And I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to myself, oh, Russell, you don't know. I might lose my job if I tell somebody about Christ. I'm sorry. I've heard that. I get it. But I do not see in the Bible where it says, be careful declaring the mystery of Christ because you might lose your job and God will not know what to do. It it just doesn't exist. Have you, in your home, lost sight of declaring the mystery of Christ to your spouse or to your children? Uh, This happens to us, and we're about to start school, and frankly, the first two or three weeks of school is exhausting. We have four children. Three of them will be in school. Those of your parents would, would be able to identify with this, but it's exhausting. And you know what we focus on? We've really 
I mean, we lose sight of the work of God in the world totally because all we're focusing on is getting their shoes tied so they can get out of the door at 740 so that they could be in the building at 750 so they can start school at 8. And we're focused on how they're doing emotionally because we know it's going to be very taxing to them. And we'll focus on those kinds of things. But I want you to know that, that um, like Paul, I want to lead our family to, to keep in mind the opportunity we have as we start school to declare the mysteries of Christ to people that are around us. That's the more important thing as we get involved in activities how about you and your recreation? Do you see that as an opportunity to declare the mysteries of Christ? If you say, no, I, I could never do that, then I would find a new hobby, frankly, because you're wasting time. In your family, in your relationships. Is everyone that you spend time with personally and closely a believer in Jesus Christ? That's a problem, I think. I mean, it's good to have those kinds of relationships, and that's why I encourage you to get involved in a group beyond even Sunday morning. But what I'm saying to you is that there's something larger going on that you get to be a part of. And if we could only get a vision like Paul did that wasn't so focused on our immediate circumstance, but understood that God was doing something bigger in the world, and we get to be a part of it. I don't think anybody had to twist Paul's arm. You know one reason Paul was like this is because he experienced great joy in this work of the gospel. Prayer is essential. What we pray about reveals a lot about our faith. It's through prayer that we have access to the divine. And for those that are in Jesus Christ, our prayers have something supernatural about them. The potential is huge. Do you know that the Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is made yours in Jesus Christ? How do we access that? How do we use that? It's through prayer. Prayer is required for our church to experience all that God wants us to experience. And so as I close, I just want to mention a couple of things here about prayer that I want to set in the heart of our church. First of all, natural leadership can build an institution, but only prayer will fuel a movement. So natural leadership, training you as leaders, me, myself, developing as a leader, can build the business of the church. But I, I don't know about you. I want to experience something much bigger than that. I want to be a part of a movement where God lets us see with our very own eyes his work in our city that literally changes neighborhoods. That's the vision. Where does it start? It starts with prayer. And when we pray, we're going to get a vision like Paul to do something other than just focus on our immediate circumstance. We're going to get a vision to continue uh, declaring the mysteries of Christ. Prayer, we must realize that prayer is uh, as important to our lives uh, spiritually as water is to our bodies physically. You, you've heard it. Water is so necessary for every part of you physically, from your skin to your bones to your joints to your cells to everything about you is impacted by how much water you have or how much water you don't have. And, um, I mean, you can live on less water than you need. You'll struggle. 
in the same way that most of us would benefit from more water, as individuals and as a church, we would benefit from being a people that spent more time in prayer. We must be steadfast in prayer. If you struggle in this way, I want to offer something to you. There's a book that we read early on as a church uh, by a guy by the name of Paul Miller, and, and I want to send you a copy of this. So if you say, I want a copy of this, just fill out somewhere on a piece of paper on your chair, surely in one of those six pieces of paper, you can find a white spot. Just put on there, send me a book, and, and I will send it to you this week, a book by Paul Miller. He talks about prayer and does a lot of things. Here's one of the things he says about prayer that's really profound. He says, prayer is asking God to incarnate, to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. I mean, we know that he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him. Tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write at your prayer request. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of his garment and do not let go until he blesses you. He will reshape your day through prayer. I pray that we become a church of prayer. Now, there are some of you that are specifically gifted in this area. Like your heart really stirs when you think about prayer. It's more natural for you. You could have the gift of prayer. And what I would say to you is we need you. We need you. We want you to step up. And so there are some places where you can connect into the life of our church a little more than maybe others if you're particularly inclined to pray. And so you need to let us know, hey, get me involved. I want to be a part of praying. Prayer is important for the life of our church. And I pray that we become a people of prayer. Let us pray together.